You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. I'm your host, Erica Lance, my amazing co-host today, who's apparently wearing her wanted um, poster on her t-shirt is Valerie Willis. He's in trouble because he kicked the chickens one time too many. I love this shirt. I love this shirt. And then, of course, my kid's named Link. So he's like, every time I wear this shirt, he's like, it's me. <laughs> Make sure he doesn't kick chickens. That would be bad. That's that's round of yes. yes, yes, it is. Okay. So our sponsor today is Skunk Brother Spirits. DWA10 is the coupon code. Check them out at skunkbrotherspirits.com. And don't forget to like and subscribe. You're listening right now. You obviously can hit the like or subscribe button or you're watching. Either way, do that. It tells people you love us. Um, Our amazing guest today is Carlene Montez de Oca. Woo! Woo! And I did that. That was perfect. That that was amazing. I love that. (laughs) I want to just let everybody know that she gave me a cheat because she sent me how to pronounce her name, which was beautiful because we all know how well I pronounce names. Okay. Let us talk about what we're drinking. So in my, it's been very used drinking with authors cup. um, I have, okay, this is totally not healthy and I'm not a doctor. Don't do this. So I have a probiotic kombucha that I put gin in. You're probably not supposed to do that, but I did it anyway. I'm going to call it my healthy, still getting over my COVID cough drink. Yeah, don't do this. This is frowned upon, but it tastes really, really good. So Valerie, what are you drinking? I'm revisiting the barefoot fruscata apple and, and finishing the last of the bottle because somebody's got to. Yes. Today I am drinking it in a coffee mug that says, of course I talk to myself. Sometimes I need expert advice. (laughs) (laughs) And our guest, what are you drinking? Well, obviously I'm on a podcast with a bunch of lightweights because I'm drinking hard kombucha. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Flying Ember and it's hard kombucha. And I am drinking it out of this beautiful little glass to make it very nice. And yeah, so, um, but that drink, kombucha and gin, it's like kombucha gin or something, you know? Yeah, no, it's really good. So I actually have the uh, ginger version of the flying one. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. And I almost grabbed that. And then I said, this, it's terrible. People, I should probably film myself going to my fridge and my liquor cabinet going, what am I going to drink on today's show? Because it's really like I'm drunk already before I even get there. And I start scrounging and I was like, Ooh, mixed berry. That looks good. And I'm like, then I went to the liquor cabinet and I'm like, what should I put in this? And I was almost put the lightning from skunk brothers, but it's mid afternoon and I need to not be asleep right after the show so I was like you know what it's afternoon it's gin time I'll put gin and my boyfriend was like you know you have the hard kombucha already what are you doing and I'm like too late already in the glass I'm gonna I'm gonna share something my husband said to me as he said what what podcast are you doing I said it's called drinking with authors 
And he says, do they have a version tomorrow, which, which is called hangovers with authors? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, no. <laughs> that would not be nearly as an entertaining show. It would just be all of us potentially laying and moaning or eating like Waffle House or Taco <laughs> Bell. Like, <laughs> I'm, okay. Not, okay. not giving away what I do when I'm hungover or anything. Uh, no, like not at not all. Not a giveaway. Okay. So, Carlene, for anyone who doesn't know you, what do you write? Well, I would say that I write across genre. I've written four books. My first book was nonfiction, and it's, it, was, it is called Dog as My Doctor, Cat as My Nurse. And it's an animal lover's guide to living a healthier, happier, and more extraordinary life. So all of my books have some sort of animal theme to them, or there's at least an animal thread running through them. And that first one was really to, to uh, because I was an acupuncturist at the time and worked with a lot of clients and saw how beneficial having an animal in their life who they had a close relationship to was really great for their health and well-being. So that's why I wrote that book. And then I wrote two follow-up books, which were really journals that went with that book. And they were kind of these integrative journals, gratitude journals about how you can find more gratitude in your life with your relationship with your dog or your cat. And those were called, there was a pause for the good stuff, spelled P-A-W-S for dog lovers. And there was a pause for the good stuff for cat lovers. So those uh, books, and then my new book, which is coming out soon in the fall is called Junkyard Girl. And it's a memoir of ancestry, family secrets, and second chances. And as I said, there is an animal thread running through, but that's about how I discovered three years ago, just because I took a DNA test for fun, I found out I was adopted. And the oh, whole journey. Whoa. Was, yeah, <laughs> the whole, that, that's exactly the, re, the reaction <laughs> I get from most people. Yeah. So uh, so that's what that book is about. Wow. Wow. That, um... Wow. I'm actually a little stuck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like so, Erica. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned in the book, funny enough, that that when I would tell my friends this, they would either say, I have to sit down or I think I need a drink. So we're already drinking. So well, it's good. Drink. I have a drink. We're drinking. We're, I'm going to take yeah. a sip of it before we continue. <laughs> yeah. Because that's that's a big, that's not like a small discovery. That's like a a, a life rattling kind of jolt for for a majority of people are that, your parents no, still with you mm -mm. my okay. parents passed away and though I have uh older siblings and okay it's not just that my parents knew and my siblings knew but I also have a massive I I don't know anybody who has as big of a family I have 63 first cousins that's how big my family wow. is and the majority of them all knew but never said anything so it was this, is a, this is fascinating. Like that is a secret to keep, you know, that is amazing. I, I not nearly on the same level. My dad sat me down. Oh my gosh. Maybe this is 15 years ago now time. Um, <laughs> but he sat me down to have this very serious conversation at a breakfast nook in their house. And he's like, we need to talk. And I was like, okay. And he's, he, put his hands on my hands and I'm like waiting for like horrific news. Like I'm waiting, like, what the hell is this? This is way too early. I have one cup of coffee. I can't deal with this in the breakfast nook. And he's like, um, we're not Dutch. So my, 
maiden We're name not Dutch. is Kuiper. So Kuiper is a Dutch name, right? And um, I was born a redhead. I don't have red hair anymore. This is natural. But I used to have red hair. I had auburn hair and I had freckles, the whole thing. So he says, you know, we're not Dutch. And I said, okay. And he's like, we're actually black Irish. And I was like, well, that makes more sense. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently when we got to this country, we just went, when they asked, they, they gave a name and said we were black Irish. That's, that's how that went. And so from that point on my family, but he thought it would rattle me. And I'm like, this isn't like, you know, I'm married into some, you know, uh, royalty on the Dutch side and they're going to be mortified when they find out our genetic lineage. I'm like, dad, we're in America. We're kind of a melting pot. It doesn't matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it is kind of shocking when you find out different things. Apparently it shocked the hell out of him, but about your family. Yeah, I would say I, I liked Valerie's description of rattling. I, I thought, gosh, I should have used that word in my book. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, uh, you want me to share, share with you a little bit about what happened? Sure. If yeah. you like it, this is your podcast. You- All and, right. Well, here and, I go uh, then. Yes. And of course, if they want to really deep dive, it's all in the book, I assume. So that, so yeah, uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more uh, about this. Well, I had taken this ancestry DNA test totally for fun and just to find out, oh, well, maybe I'll be, maybe I'll find out this or that about myself and my mother, you know, I'm Mexican American, but my mother always told us there's a Jewish component to our bloodline. And I was curious about that because my cousins, my 63 first cousins were all coming in at 40% Jewish, you know, these high levels. And I thought, oh, I wonder how much I will be. And then I got the DNA test and it said 3%. And I was like, what? And so I kind of tossed it aside because I was really busy at the time and I didn't have time to look at it. But about a week later, after getting the DNA test, this man who had friended me about a week before on Facebook, sent me a private message. And he said, you look an awful lot like my wife. And I was like, God, what a flirt. And I just ignored him, but he kept sending me messages. And then he sent me a picture of this woman. And he said, don't you think you look like her? Don't you think? And, you know, being my sarcastic self, I said, you know, no, I think that your wife and I shop for glasses at the same store. And he said, well, ancestry DNA says different. And I went, whoa, how does he know? And I said, who's your wife? And he told me the name of a woman named Martha and the last name. And I remembered that when I got those results, there was a woman's name there. And if I had paid more attention to that, I would have seen that it also said in the fine line, this could potentially be a sibling, but I didn't pay attention at the whoa, time. So that's, I just got <laughs> uh, yeah, like I couldn't imagine getting an ancestry.com thing back and being told I have possible siblings elsewhere. Like that's, that is ridiculous. That's that a is surreal so moment. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and to be honest, part of me was, I didn't even look at that part of it, but part of me looked at the rest of it and I said, well, 3% Jewish, I don't even understand that. I'm putting it aside. So what happened was that his wife reached out to me and she was very polite and said, I don't want to interfere with your life, but this is the most I've ever seen myself be connected to anybody. And I've been looking for seven years for family. And I wonder, maybe you'll know somebody who I might be related to because I have been, uh, what's the word, estranged from my mother and my brother that I have. And 
I really felt for her. And I, I said, well, and, and then at the end of the note, she said, thank you very much for any help you'll give me. And it was something like, you know, there's always a buried secret somewhere in a family. And I thought, yeah, my family's had its share of secrets and uh, I, you know, we've uncovered them, but I didn't know the secret was going to be me. So anyway, I, I approached my siblings who I'd grown up with and we're usually a kind of a funny family. We laugh a lot and we're always having fun and nobody was laughing when I brought it up. My parents were deceased, couldn't ask them about anything. So I asked my siblings and they were both, or two of them were like, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. So about two weeks later, my sister, who I had grown up with and I'm very close to, flew out to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I live. And she said, she wasn't even in this house more than five minutes before she said, something big has happened in our family and I have to talk to you about it. I was like, oh my God, what's happened? What's happened? And then she started crying and she sat down and was pulling out pages out of her purse. And she said, I knew I was going to start crying. I knew it. So I wrote these all down. And then she started reading and she mentioned this woman, Martha. And I went, what does that have to do with anything? And then she said, Carlene, the secret is that you're adopted. And that's the moment that I felt like the earth just fell out from under me. I know I was, I, I, I didn't know at the time, but later I realized I was in shock because <coughs> I stopped being able to hear anything. It was like, I had an accident about many years before where it rattled me so much. I stopped like people's voices bothered me and I could only hear muffled sounds. Well, the same thing happened this time. It was like somebody put cotton in my ears. I could see my sister's lips moving, but I couldn't totally hear what she was saying, but she was just reading from these pages and the way the story went was that my mother, who my adoptive mother had gone to go see a friend of hers and we lived in, or she, they lived in Southern California at the time in the Santa Barbara area. She went to see a friend of hers and heard a lady crying outside. And when her friend came to the door, she said, Hey, who's this woman out here? Who's crying? And she said, Oh, that's my, that's my cousin. And she's here from Chicago. She's not married. She has two children and she's got another one on the way. She wants me to help her get an abortion. This is the 60s when abortion was illegal everywhere. And she said, I am not going to help her. And my mother went home to my dad. They talked, they came back and they said to this perfect stranger, we will take, we'll adopt your child. And they took this whole family to live with them. And my parents did not oh have a lot goodness. of money. Yeah, but they took this family to live with them and kept them there for until I was born six months later. And then two months later, they gave them money to go back to Chicago. And that's how the story started. Wow. 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 So you said earlier about not hearing. We see that in movies and TV shows <laughs> all the time. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Where the, suddenly yeah. it's like they turn and it spins the camera. The high-pitched tone. Sort of noises or something. But Flatlining. You had it happen in real life? Because I always go, that doesn't really happen like that. But I've never had news presented to me this way where like it would it would happen to me so I haven't experienced it now I know it's real I take back any thoughts I had previously <laughs> how well did that in movies it happens you know what's odd is the first time it happened I had we had been my sister and I had been in a car accident and I had a Volvo at the time and you know how those are tanks it got rear-ended and totaled and we were in the car and you know shock and adrenaline doesn't let you feel the hurt right away but later on, 
I remember all night going, nobody talked to me. Nobody talked to me. This is just too much. And people's voices were bothering me and my ears felt odd. So I think, think of that trauma and then think of a trauma that had nothing to do with a physical trauma, but an emo, yeah, an emotional hit. And so they, I, yeah, it was pretty weird. This is fantastic. I'm (laughs) And I want to hear this, read this story. Like I just, not in a good way. And I'm sorry to use the word fantastic, but I fantastical. Is that a better word? Like, I am like so blown away by this. Like that would be such an interesting thing. And the man, they managed to keep it secret for so long. So long. So many people, like no one slipped up out of 63 cousins. You said no one slipped up. No one slipped up, but then it made me start thinking, am I that dumb that I could not figure that out? I don't look like anyone. I don't act like anyone. My personality is so different than everybody else's. You know, everybody kind of stayed close to home. I wanted to get out of there as fast as possible and go and have a life and this and that and the other. And so I, I sometimes think, gosh, I mean, I, I have spoken to other, we, it's called LDAs, late discovery adoptees, people who discover when they're older that they're adopted. And usually a lot of them figure something out. I didn't figure anything else out except that I was different. And also because I was told, like, for example, I'd look at my family who, you know, this is what I look like. They, uh, my brother, my dad, my brother, my sister, they're very light skinned. My dad has green eyes. They all have dimples, you know, and they have aquiline noses. So it's, it's a very different look. And I always think, why didn't I figure that out? And I would ask my cousins who I was close to, and I'd say, how come I don't look like anybody? And then I remember my cousin Marty saying, because she knew, and she said, oh, you look like Ray, who's my oldest brother. And I'd go, okay, well, he doesn't look exactly like either of my parents either. Yeah, maybe I do. But the other thing too is everybody, my brothers are six four, six three. My sister's five six. I'm five two and three quarters. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was there in front of me all the time and I never saw it. Yeah. Well, that that also shows the level in which your family ad- adopted you, per se. You know, they took you in and they took you in completely. And I think that has, that says volumes. Well, you know, that's, I forgot to mention the other part is when the family left and I was left as a baby with this family, my sister described that my mother took her and my brothers in and they surrounded my crib. And my mother said, this is your sister. She's adopted, but you're never to tell her she's adopted because it was the sixties and there was stigmas around children out of wedlock. And my parents were actually from Mexico where it was a lot worse for kids out of wedlock. And she said, people will try to hurt her. So never tell her. So that's how that, and, and my siblings did what my siblings always did. And what my 63 first cousins always did with my parents, because they were the matriarch and patriarch of our family. They did what they were told. And it kind of, my sister always says, because I've said to her, I'm not even going to ever ask her again because it's just too hard. But I, I say, why didn't you tell me? I would have told you, okay, maybe not while my parents were alive. I get it. <laughs> That's the way my parents were. I get it. But I would have told you when they died. I would have told you. I wouldn't have waited all these years. And she just said, I just didn't, I, we were told what to do. And I just didn't want to lose you. 
So, you know, people make mistakes and I get that. And, uh, but yeah, that's how it, that's how it was. It's true. And, you know, it, it's interesting because you do bring up, and I'm sure in the book tackle the question, like, what do you do in those circumstances? Because it's kind of like, I've had, you know, many people, I'm one of those people, weirdly enough, as a host of a talk show, I'm one of those people that people just randomly walk up and start talking to and tell their entire life story to. Um, I've had this happen since I was way younger, but um, working in HR, two people would come and tell me things like, I found out a friend of mine's spouse is cheating on them. Do I go tell them this? Like, you know, there are certain things that you can find out and you go, do I tell them? Like, what is the effect it would have? Now, it's one thing if you go do a DNA test and it comes up, but would it, if you never had done that and didn't know that, would it have affected your life? It's weird. And we want to say what we think we would do or what we think is the right thing. But that judgment for people is always different because in the case, which is not the same thing, but I've seen the cases where somebody's said, hey, I, your child's spouse, boyfriend, whatever, it's cheating on you. And the other person now is no longer their friend and distancing and sides with the spouse. So what do you do? Like, how, how do you fix that? You know? Well, I can't speak for that. I think that the cheating thing would be really for me anyway, uh, dependent on friend to friend to friend. I mean, there may be friends I would not tell that to. There may be friends I would tell that to. I guess I would want to know if that happened. So I would hope that one of my friends would tell me And, but I will just say from my point of view with what has happened to me and, you know, it was intense and I, that is the hardest part that I was not told. Sometimes I think I was told at exactly the right time, but I also, I live with this paradox. I feel like I was told at the right time, but I also feel that I should have been told right from the get-go. And this is why one is there was a secret. And I sometimes think that I somehow knew something, even though I've told you that I didn't figure it out. That's another paradox I live with because ever since I was a little kid, and there were reasons for this, I kept, I would sit there with my dogs in their dog kennel as a little kid, look up at the sky and say, when are my real parents coming for me? When are they really going to come? I know this can't be my family. I know this can't be my life. When are my real parents coming for me? And sometimes I think about like, like, I feel like there's a memory of something that I knew that I can't quite, quite grasp yet. But when I grew up, my bedroom was right next to the kitchen in the kitchen was where my parents spoke about everything. And I keep picturing that I would feel like I was waking up sometime to hear something. And that, that's where I'm caught. Like, I don't remember anything else, but I feel like I may have known. And I, I just, I think that it's important for an LDAs to know because it's too much of a shock. Some of them never get over it. I, I know yeah. plenty of people who are, I, it's been three years for me. There's been people that has been 30 years for, and they're really struggling. And so I would never want that to happen. I think it's important to tell your child from the beginning and also think about medical situation. If something had happened yeah. to me medically, you know, how many times I went to the doctor and filled out all their medical stuff and none of it relates to anything. You know, what if I had had a child of my own? And so that's yeah. important to know. And also my family couldn't be guaranteed that I wouldn't cut them off, that I wouldn't say, God, you guys are jerks. You never told me. And I think they were afraid of that. No, yeah. that's true. There's so many different aspects. Okay. 
sounds completely amazing story that you went through, really. Um, I, I want to ask, when did you start writing, though? You wrote your dog and cat book, and this is because you told me previous to us recording that you um, took on four, re- uh, six rescues, a six pack, right? Something. Yeah. So your six pack, <laughs> my six pack. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was actually an acupuncturist in Northern California at the time. That was my second career. And, uh, you know, when you're sitting with as an ac- I don't know if either of you have had acupuncture. I have, and I love yeah. acupuncture. Excellent. Yay. Well, what I would always try to um, have is I would always, when people would come in, you know, I'd probably talk to them for like 30 minutes, 20 minutes, just to see what other things were underlying, maybe the main concern that they had, whether it was a cold or cancer, there was always something underlying that could be emotional, maybe spiritual of some kind. And as I spoke to them, I started to notice if they were new and had never seen me, of course, they'd be tense. They'd have their arms across. They'd be like, are you any good at this? Why are you asking me these questions? But as soon as I got them to talk about their dog or their cat, suddenly the smile would come or frankly, even the tears would come, but it was unbelievable. And I thought to myself, wow, there must be some, there is something I know that when people smile or laugh or cry, there's a physiological thing going on in their system that they, they need. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm sure that their blood pressure is going down now. I'm sure that their immune system is getting a nice little boost from the laughter. I know that all these hormones that are really positive, the, the, the love hormones, oxytocin, you know, those that's kind of coming up as well. And I thought, gosh, and they're only telling me the story. They're not even with their dog or cat at the moment. And that's when I got the idea of dog as my doctor, cat as my nurse, because I also at the time had, as you say, a six pack of uh, four rescued dogs and two rescue cats. And I've always been somebody who rescues dogs that other people don't want, which means I have to probably put a little bit of effort sometimes into their rehabilitation. And what I had learned was, have you all, I don't know, have you, any of you heard of Caesar Milan, who's a doctor? Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. I love watching his show. Okay. So I took my dog Roxy cause I adopted her and she was from South central Los Angeles, which is kind of the hood in LA. And she was, oh, she was, she was a tough dog and I was having trouble cause she was aggressive and all these things. So way back when Caesar was just beginning, I took her to see him with a group of about 15 other people. They had a very small group and it was at this horse ranch in North central California. And when I got there, Roxy, my dog was like, rawr, rawr, rawr. she was like getting really angry at the other dog. So I took her aside. Then when Caesar came out, he looked around and he said, Oh, who's got the most aggressive dog here. And everybody pointed at me. So he said, can I borrow the dog? And I said, sure. And I gave him the leash and Roxy was just trying to nip at him. And then she found out she was getting further from me. So she started trying to get back to me. And then he, he said two other people who have aggre- or two other aggressive dogs. So he had two dogs in one hand, Roxy in the other, and he just started to walk. And they, my dog was the worst. Oh, she was bad. But then as soon as he turned the corner and passed a tree and came out the other side, maybe in three seconds, they were all walking happily together. And you could hear the whole crowd gasp, including me. And then he came up to me and he says, now you do it. And I went, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but here, and I tried to walk everybody. 
And then he says to me, no, 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 no. What's, why are you so tense? And I said, you know what? Cause I know what she's capable of. And he said, well, if you want her to get better, if you want her to be a balanced dog, you've got to let all that go. And that happened yesterday. From now on, you never walk that dog being angry, tense, stressed, any of that. You walk her with a balance, you know, that, you know, you go meditate, do whatever you need to do to get yourself balanced before you walk that dog. And that's how she will heal. And it was the first time I understood that whatever I was feeling, she would feel it like a thousand times more big impact. Big impact. Yeah, exactly. So that's, I had all these. So I had the clients in my acupuncture practice. I had these dogs that I was trying to rehabilitate. And that's when I came up with this idea for this book, because in trying to help them and rehabilitating them, I, in a sense, did that for myself. And I saw the powerful impact it could have on me. And not only me, but I started interviewing all sorts of people who had similar experiences from people who had cancer and their dogs never left their side or their cats lay on their bed and just help them through this excruciating time. You know, people had breakups, people were living with other people who were ill and how their, even their cats would get them to go out on a walk. So that's where that whole book came, became from. And that idea came from. I think that is amazing. It is. that, That really is. Okay, we actually have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Drinking With Authors. At the 42Cast, we want to bring you everything. And that's why we've jam-packed the next few months with as much as we can. You not only get the same reviews, topics, and interviews that you did before, you also get screen reads where we compare a movie to its source material, or role models where we talk about tabletop gaming. It's never been a more exciting time to check out our show. It's your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. So why not check it out? We can be found on most podcasting platforms, and we are a proud member of the ESO Network. Our sponsor today on Drinking With Authors is Skunk Brothers Spirits. Skunk Brothers Spirits was started by a family of disabled veterans focused on locally sourced quality distilled spirits. Their name was inspired by their pops, who was nicknamed Skunk. Skunk's father was a moonshiner in Oregon back when it wasn't exactly legal. Now the brothers are taking the family business legal with their Washington-based team using their grandfather's Prohibition-era moonshine recipe to bring small batch spirits to the gorge and beyond. From the moonshine corn whiskey to the apple pie brandy, all of their spirits are handmade in Washington. Believing they already have the best ingredients in the local community, they work with local farmers and suppliers to produce the highest quality spirits from scratch. You can find them on Facebook at Skunk Brothers and on Twitter at Skunk Bros Inc. Or visit their site www.skunkbrotherspirits.com and use coupon code DWA10 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. You can always also ask your local retailer to start stocking Skunk Brother Spirits. Regardless of how you get your hands on a bottle or two, grab a drink and don't forget to get skunked. Okay, we're back. So before the break, you were talking about the first book. When did you actually start writing or find a passion for writing? Because a lot of us, the stories go way before the time we actually started working on a book. Some not. Some people are like, I decided to write a book and I did. Now it's like on the New York Times bestseller. (laughs) 
who I'm like, are you? I want the, <laughs> the other numbers from you. <laughs> so I wanted to be a writer ever since I can remember, but there was a lot of things that are keeping me back and mostly it was my self-limiting beliefs. Oh no, I'm not good enough. Oh no, I can never do that. And I, my first career was actually as a film editor working on movies like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Three Men oh, wow. and a L- Little Lady back in the day. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I liked storytelling and I liked, you know, I love movies. I still love movies and really great TV shows and whatnot. But I just kept thinking I wanted to so badly to be a writer, but I just kept, I just had too much fear around it. So I remember, um, and this went on for decades until I was then an acupuncturist. And I remember one day literally getting up out of bed and there was always inside of me, this thing was like, oh, I want to be a writer. God, I can't do it. I want to be a writer. Oh, I can't do it. And one day I woke up and I literally said to myself, if I don't do this now, I will regret it for the rest of my life. And if not now, then when, and I literally looked at my husband and I said, can uh, I've, I've got to do this. I have to, if I don't do that, I, I don't even know what will become of me. So I reached out to get help like book coaches and whatnot to help me understand and, and learn how to get from A to Z to write a book. And it was a pretty amazing thing in that that book became won several awards. It became an Amazon number one bestseller. I, I did a lot of media around it and that gave me a lot of confidence and that taught me like, well, you did that once. Let's see if you can do it again. That's very cool. I think that's awesome. And I think a lot that's of awesome. people get imposter syndrome. Um, I was recently yeah. talking to another author and that's exactly what she was experiencing. She's published, I want to say like eight books or something and done really well. She's an amazing writer, but she'll start getting in her head in the middle of a book and like, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I should stop doing this. And so I told her to put a little Erica on her shoulder yeah, that looked yeah, her and go, what the hell are you saying? Stop <laughs> it. Just keep writing. Stop being annoying. And so I, I um, literally kept writing down, like in the beginning when I struggled, I, I was like, all right, I want to make a mantra to, to stop this. That every time I think that I now have to write a whole page of don't be your own obstacle. Don't be your own obstacle. If the only thing stopping me from doing a thing is something I'm thinking, then I should do the thing. (laughs) Absolutely. And I've also, because of podcasts like this, where you're listening to a lot of other authors, you realize you're not so alone Mm -hmm. in your experience. I'm not unique in what I just described. I think probably, you know, I don't know, maybe 95% of authors feel the same way. I hear it all the time on podcasts. And that makes me feel like, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not unique then. I'm not alone. They all had that. Look what they did. So I, yeah, especially during the first draft where you're writing something that's not exactly stellar. (laughs) And it's your first book and you're not confident. And if you're, there's no wrong or right way. There's no wrong or right way. Right. So, and what did I hear that the first draft is just, you know, you're supposed to toss that. And as soon as I'm taught these things and I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. So I've let go a tremendous amount of the other stuff and of the self-limiting beliefs. And I also feel at this point, like I'm doing the best I can, you know, this is the best I can. And that's all I can do. That's very true. So this book comes out here shortly. What is the date the book comes out? November 2nd, 2022. And which happens to be my dad's birthday. Which is oh, very cool. Oh. Yeah. It's also, it's also national adoption month. So there's a lot of specialness around, I think that date. 
That is very awesome. That was clever. So what are you working on now? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? The next book. There is. And my list is so big. I started off uh, saying that I write across genre. So it's sort of like take a step every time. So I started with nonfiction, which isn't to say I won't do another one, but then memoir is technically nonfiction, though this book I know because people have told me it reads like a novel. So it's getting me ready for to write fiction. But I have I I have decided not to put a lot of pressure on myself to figure out the next step because there's so many books I want to write. So what I've decided to do is once my book launch is over, which there's a lot of work to get ready for that book launch. I mean, there is, I'm working, you know, for me, you know, seven, eight hours a day, seven days a week to just get ready for that. But I'm thinking, okay, once, you know, mid-November Thanksgiving kind of rolls around, I can take a little bit of a break and just read, just read. Cause somebody told me they read my book, my last, this memoir and said, have you ever thought of writing cozy mysteries? And I went, no. But then I thought, so then I went and got a bunch of cozy mysteries and I'm like, what are you talking about? So I decided to read them. And so I have a big pile of books I want to read. And that's what I'm like looking forward to it. So in January, I will figure out what the next book is, though. I do want to do an audio version of dog is my doctor, cat is my nurse, as well as junkyard girl. So that'll keep me a little busy for a while. No, that's true. That's uh, yes. Yes. That's always fun. Um, I think that's exciting, especially getting into the fiction world and mysteries. Mysteries are a fun thing to write, especially cozy mysteries now are really a popular genre. Huh. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, I don't know enough about it. I just, I went to the local library, had a sale and I got all their cozy mystery books. So we'll see. There's usually a hint of a romance, but there's no obligation for a romance. And I think the appeal with cozy mysteries is that it has the same stipulation as a romance or a Hallmark movie, because Mm -hmm. it's going to end on a happier note. You know Mm -hmm. that no matter how rough or crazy or scary things get in a cozy mystery, that at the end, you know, it's going to have a a happy or good ending. Um, So it's kind of nice to go in the roller coaster ride, knowing that you're going to come out laughing. Kind of you mean like kind of like happy. Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> don't, don't get me started about Game of Thrones. I had to warn my daughter. I'm like, don't watch season eight. And she's like, no, I watched it. And she's like, I really wish I'd listened to you. I'm like, there's a point in about season six that you should probably just stop and then you'll feel good about it. You know what I mean? I've watched uh, House of uh, Game of Thrones three times all the way through and I'm watching, uh, what is it called? House of Dragons. Watching the House of Dragon, I I really enjoyed those <coughs> books. <coughs> Excuse me. I really enjoyed those books. I really enjoyed um, the, a lot of the first season. I know they changed some things, but anybody who starts to understand, you did film editing. If you ever did a novelization to a film, there's not that many pages of script, really. Even if it's 120 pages of script, I keep telling people, like, if you looked at a script page, if, if you get a quarter of a page of actual text on it, you're lucky. Like, it's, you know, so you got maybe 30 pages out of that book just went into the movie. That's, you know, how it works. And so people were upset about changing things, but then it got weird. Um, so it got weird. <laughs> and then it got weird. So you're publishing. Did you, were you traditionally published the first book or self? I was a, I went, I did a hybrid publishing uh, with She Writes Press. 
And I'm glad I did that the first time because I didn't know how to do anything. And what I did was I signed up with them in order to learn. Like, so I was following every step of the way. How did they do this? How did they do that? How did they do this? And for the last five years, I have been studying publishing as much as I possibly can to learn all the ins and outs because it's such a fluid and it's so ever-changing publishing. So I I always try to keep up as much as I can. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of books. I, you know, belong to the Independent Book Publishers Association. So I I keep up as much as I can uh, to learn. I tell people all the time, every three months, some major change hits the, hits some part of it. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how much it's evolving, just trying to keep up between the technology and the readers and the authors who are coming mm-hmm. in. So, and, and for the first book, I felt when it was done and I felt like, oh, I have a good book here. It's a good product and whatnot. I, um, I start, I, I started, well, okay, well, I guess I should go look for an agent or I guess, you know, and then the agent can look for the, but I was like, oh, it's going to take forever. Ever. And I started to see that there were a lot of publications coming out, the Smithsonian and uh, different magazines talking about this animal human health connection. And I thought, well, by the time this book is out, you know, the wave will be over. So I better just get on it now. And that's why I went this in this direction. No, that makes sense. And it's different for every person. I talked, as you know, podcast, Mm -hmm. we talk to people that are like, nope, love the traditional route forever and ever. But it always gets me when I'm like, so when is your next book coming out? And they tell me like two years from now. And I'm like, oh, I couldn't even stand it. Like, no, nope, sorry, hard pass. Too many imaginary friends to share with the world. I've got to throw them all out there all the time. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I remember my publisher for, for a dog is my doctor said, I will never forget this. She said, people think that traditional publishing is now is what it was in the fifties. They think they're going to give you a big advance and you're going to get off on a big book tour. And I don't know why that just prevails because it's not the way it is anymore, at least not for most authors. Like even for my I did a book tour for my first book, but I put that together. You know, yeah. I, I did a lot, I mean, all this media that I did, I did it like o- over a hundred different media, you know, opportunities from TV down, you know, to TV, to everything, but I put it together. So, you know, it's a lot of work, but it can be done. And I, you know, and it's the same with this book when I finished it and I, I did, I knew I had a really good product, but I started doing the agent thing and I started to see, God, it's going to take forever if I get one, you know, and maybe, or maybe not, they will publish it. And am I going to like the book cover? Do I really want to give up the rights to something that's so personal to me? All those things. And then somebody I knew who was in the know said, you know, right now, memoir is not the biggest thing that they're looking for. Number two is that everybody wrote a book during COVID. So they are being bombarded. And I'm just like, forget it. And when I, and, but I still wonder, did I make the right choice? Did I make the right choice? But now seeing the reaction, like I have a very big advanced reader team and seeing the reaction to that. Also seeing the beautiful book cover that we had made. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just really going, God, would I have gotten that if I had gone this other direction? So, so there's a lot of pros and cons and, and I'm always weighing them for each book or traditional versus independent publishing. And you, you did say it is 
the publishing industry at, at large, I'm going to say at large, because there's a lot of different facets, but that, that oil tanker has not changed very much other than um, it's more limiting in what it gives authors. There was an, an interesting study and um, me and Valerie shared it with our authors at Four Horsemen, our publishing company. But um, one of the things that was very interesting is it said more than I want to say, and Val will keep me honest here because I'm doing math with Jen on the brain, which is not probably a good idea. But anyway. Is this the 12 book thing? Yeah, it's, it's something so like the 65 Under 12. So under 12 was 14% out of 40, over 47,000 authors from big guys. No, 47,000 independently published titles. books. Yes. And this is from the top um, seven publishing companies. Uh, almost 15% of them sold 12 or less books. Less than 12. Less than from 12. 12 to 999 was 51%. And I'm like, 12 is a funny spot to be cutting this pie so i assume most of that 51 percent sold 12 books independently published books no these are the big top seven oh. book publishers what? yeah uh, yeah i yeah, know I can, i'll like, send you the the thing we'll if you remind you. me i'll say i'm the, like it takes effort not to sell at least 12. <laughs> <laughs> well but the thing is is that i think a lot of publishers where their mistake is is a couple things right but the number one mistake major publishers are not keening on to, and I don't understand why, is helping the authors create the brand Platform. to talk themselves. Like, because the number one way books are sold are word of mouth. Number two is author platform, which means you have to get your author to understand getting in front of people, how to get newsletters set up. Like, there's just some core things to, for them to talk about their books that they need to do as a brand and mm -hmm. how to go to local libraries, training them on how to walk into bookstores to get their books there. Like all these things, especially if you're traditionally published because the books are everywhere, right? Quote unquote. But you, it, it's interesting because the publishing industry is not taking gambles on people, but it's also not helping the people that it's getting books. Because I can't imagine that a traditionally published book selling less than a thousand copies isn't costing the company money, mm -hmm. right? Because of how they do it, all the people they have that work there. Because, you know, the bigger an organization gets, the more fluffy Overhead. employees you have that do weird stuff that you would never even think of, like, you know, clean the break rooms at the, the main building, like stuff like that. And they have more than 65% of their books sell under a thousand books. Mm -hmm. that, that's an amazing statistic. I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking, gosh, you know, what would be my publishing dream? And it would be that I found either an agent and a publisher who wanted to work as hard as I did on, on my books. As hard as I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to put that work in. I'm more than willing to pay. I actually, one of those weird authors who likes marketing. I enjoy it. And I'm I think jealous, really ma'am. I'm jealous because I hate it. I loathe it so bad. Oh, really? I don't know. Maybe I've just gotten over it. I didn't know how to do it. And now I'm just, I try different things and people, you know, I, I seem to be receptive to it, but I think to myself, okay, well, I'm willing to do it. I just need somebody to work to, okay, maybe you're not going to match me, but can you do something, you know, while I'm doing this, that isn't just sending out a press release. I mean, that's helpful, but not terribly. And so so I haven't found anybody like that exactly. And so I'll just keep doing what I'm doing for now. Well, 
offline, we will introduce you to somebody that does similar things. Let me just put oh, that away. Okay. Um, let's talk about um, <coughs> your writing environment. So do you no longer do acupuncture? No, what happened was that we moved from Northern California, where I was living and had my acupuncture practice to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we live now. And part of that move enabled me to, to just focus all my efforts on writing. Awesome. Yeah. I love Santa Fe. The I, I lived in Albuquerque. Oh, okay. I, I love New Mexico. It's a very different vibe. And I also grew up in California. So I uh, understand all the vibes, all, all the vibes. <laughs> and I also understand all the costs. So you save a lot of money moving to New Mexico versus it, California. It is totally true. It's surprising though, like food is not any cheaper and uh, there are certain things, but yeah, I mean, and the community mm -hmm. is amazing. I mean, there's a lot of artists here which is really beautiful. And, and there's a lot of people coming from lots of different areas. So I feel very stimulated living in this environment. Yes. And I could tell from the architecture behind you, I was like, she is somewhere in Arizona or New Mexico. <laughs> Either that or she decided to do a weird house thing in the middle of Oklahoma and it's awkward, but. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those fake backgrounds. Yeah, is it a big background? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh my goodness. I was like, <laughs> she was like, we're impressed, ma'am. What program do you use? We're gonna That's what I was saying. Cause like you're a marketing genius. <laughs> you tell me about your background. So um, what is your writing? Do you like listening to music? What, how do you go about your writing process? It's different. Uh, for example, one thing I would, I usually do, but I'm not doing it this year because I'm involved with my launch, when my book launches. I do, do you know NaNoWriMo? Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's how I get that draft out. So I'm going to have to create my own NaNoWriMo this year because I don't want to wait till November. So national for you know, people that don't know, that's National Novel Writing Month. And it's a way to just put your first draft down in 30 days. And so, it's com or dot org i can't remember i don't know but it's n-a-n-o-rimo w-r-i even if you don't and, and this is advice i give away often if you're out there it's nanorimo.org um even if the don't be intimidated by the 50k goal you don't have to hit that goal but the mm. being able to reach out and find your local, like within reach community. It is a great, great place. It's also a great online resource where you can talk to other writers, uh, both new and veterans at the ease of a couple of clicks. Mm -hmm. um, I use it as resetting my, um, my writing habit. Cause by November or by the end of the year, I start to fall apart a little bit and I'm like, okay, I have gotten out of the habit of writing. I need to fall back into the habit of writing and Nano gets me there. But uh, early on in my career, I discovered NaNoWriMo thanks to a UK friend. I signed up, realized there was a local chapter in my town that I didn't realize that was there. And ever since that moment, it has changed my career for the better. Mm -hmm. I, re I started going to open mics. I started joining a lot of the critique partners and there was free workshops. That I had no idea were happening in my backyard. It's a really good resource. So sorry, I had to do my little, little no, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, so that's what I do, but I usually start several months ahead of time thinking, what's the next one? What's the next one? And as I said, I have a list of things. So I'll choose something. I'll usually try to get a draft out during NaNoWriMo month, and then I let it go for a little while. 
Mm -hmm. uh, then I start looking at it again with fresh eyes, maybe a month later. I, when I'm writing, I don't use music when I'm thinking and kind of maybe putting it down. Cause I like to brainstorm a lot. That's when I do music and I have playlists like, oh, and in fact, when I'm listening to Pandora during the day, I'll go, oh, that's a good part for that scene. And then I, I write it down and I keep a little list in case I need, because music really uh, inspires me. And I feel like, oh, I'm in that scene where I'm, you know, marching across whatever. So I, I do use music that way. It's not this room, but I have another cool little room. That's my writing room that has these like, see those little, uh, you know, things, but the I'll doors are like that. Yeah. The doors are actually <laughs> like that. So they look like surfboards. But uh, so I work in that room. My dog works my, is with me. And oh. she gets me to take breaks when I need it. She somehow senses that and starts nudging me. And then I, we go outside. I, I try to take a little bit of a break, you know, five minutes every hour just to, for good health, you know, cause my back oftentimes just gets tired of sitting there. Uh, and let me see, I guess it would depend on which book I was working on. I try not to get distracted during the time that I'm writing. And I usually have a goal. That's why NaNoWriMo helps. Cause I'll say, okay, I have to get 1700 words down on paper today. But one thing I learned, which has been very helpful is I go for a hike every morning with my dog. And when I'm writing, I just go, okay, whatever it is, what's happening. And then I just start talking into the cell phone and taking notes, just talking, 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 whatever's coming down. So by the time I get home, I've got a bunch of stuff that actually can be some of the words in that I would have accumulated that month. So I have found that just thinking as I'm walking, because walking is just, you're not doing anything. You're just kind of observing. And I think it opens your mind to any ideas. And if you ask the question right before the walk, like, what is this character supposed to do in this scene? Your brain will start giving you the answers or the possibilities. So I have found that to be very helpful for me. And uh, I find that I, I, you know, I'll write sometimes at night, though I try not to get in that habit, but I get a lot of ideas at night too. And early in the morning, as soon as I wake up. So when I'm writing, I just pretty much focus on that's my number one priority for the day. Yeah. I've, I've woken up many a times at three in the morning and just <laughs> messaged whatever friend was available. And it was like, I'll uh, ignore me. I'm just, I, I need something to write on. <laughs> you've got good friends three yeah, or, or you could use otter which she has on her phone which is an app that will record and then send the file but i don't think her three o'clock in the morning brain ever remembers, remembers. That she has that. so no, instead no you can wake up randomly to a terribly weird text that looks like luckily she doesn't write horror the way i do because if i did that to friends <laughs> i have no idea what would happen when they woke up in the morning and saw the text no, you know? no. and Mine the are... mutilated body blah blah <laughs> they pick up and be like <laughs> yeah and, and some of those ideas like I'm like it's the best idea I've ever had and then in the morning it's like holy cow and just erase it <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible okay well um let's get your shameless self-promotion tell everybody where to find you in your books lovely well you can all find me at animal human health dot com animalhumanhealth.com and that's my website and you can uh, find me anywhere as carlene montes de oca on social media sometimes it's carlene mdo but hopefully there will be show notes and uh the spelling of my name which can there be, will be don't worry yes. <laughs> so but it is that carlene montes promise. de oca yes and 
um, Junkyard Girl is my next book that will be out um, November 2nd, 2022. And I'd be really excited. Anybody listening to this, if you read that book, you can let me know what you thought of it. That would be awesome. Absolutely. You've been so much fun. This has been such an engaging conversation. And I noticed we hardly drank. I have a totally. I know. know. Um, Well, well, some of us maybe drink a little bit more than hardly drink. (laughs) You know, somebody's got to keep up the thing as fast as chugging. Don't chug wine. It's a terrible plan to chug wine. And may I say one last thing about uh, shameless promotion, which is for yes. any dog dog lovers out there, I write this blog based on the animal human bond for anybody who loves that. And you can find my blog at animalhumanhealth.com. And really, I think it's something that for dog lovers or animal lovers, people would really enjoy and find inspiring. Absolutely. Love and I'm it. assuming they can sign up for your newsletter on your site. Absolutely. There's even, a, there's even a quiz there right now about like, what can your dog or your cat tell you about your health that you don't know? So well, I'm terrified of what my dog or cats <laughs> tell me. My cats are unpleasant human beings and, and just, I don't even want to know. Okay, no, go to the got, then. Yeah. I have two feral cats that were feral cats mm-hmm. that I brought in. Mm-hmm. And so technically I would say they're rescues, but I, they, you know, for, they can be sweet as pie. And then that other half of them, that's like, I'm going to eat you in your sleep. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay. He's down. <laughs> I know. Like when I'm over at your house, they, they, when you're, when everyone's still awake, they like avoid me like the plague. As soon as Erica's in her room and shuts the door, they rush me and want to love on me. And I'm like, what is this? Is this closet love time? Like, they, like, can't, they have the to day. maintain that tough exterior, Val. That's what yes. it is. They're, yes, they can't show mom cats. their weakness. They, I love cats. They're so awesome. <laughs> cats, they definitely are their own thing. So it has been wonderful, Carlene, having mm-hmm. you on the show. Thank you again. My, um, this has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. Our sponsor today has been Skunk Brothers Spirits. Coupon code DWA10. Check them out. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And of course, now that you've been drinking with us, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. And unless you're talking about Val, then you can just email her directly. I'll send the email what? in the show notes. Just kidding. I would never it's not do like that. like they can't find it anyway. <laughs> they <laughs> That's true, they could. My amazing co-host today has been Valerie Willis, and we will see you guys next time. Next time, guys. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network. Your station for all things geek.